Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. The show is a proud media partner for the 11th Annual Media Excellence Awards, which are produced by Access Entertainment in Los Angeles, California. The Media Excellence Awards are recognized as the most influential awards show, honoring innovation and leadership in all things mobile entertainment, lifestyle, and technology. For more information on how to submit to these awards, please visit MediaXAwards.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Kerry Liu. He's the founder and CEO of Rubicloud. Kerry, welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing selfishly is very, very fascinating to me and I'm sure the listener as well. But maybe before we get into all that stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, that, that that's always uh, important is who, you know, who, who am I? I was... Um, so I was born in Shanghai. Okay. Uh, but I moved here with my with my family. Uh, we immigrated to Vancouver when I was about two and a half, three years old. Very cool. Uh, and I spent most of my life in Vancouver. I moved to Toronto uh, just under ten years ago. Okay. Uh, and you know, I, I kind of have a bit of an identity crisis because I love Toronto way more than I love Vancouver. Interesting. Uh, and it's hard to admit that. Uh, and I love it for a variety of reasons, not just because it's a great tech city, and you know, I founded the company here and all that stuff, but. So, so yeah, uh, Shanghai born, uh, raised in Vancouver. I actually started my career uh, in uh, in the accounting and consulting world. So I spent about four years at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Sure. Uh, and the the real reason for that is I wanted to learn the inside guts of businesses, but I Makes also sense. didn't have the courage to start a company either. So I, I didn't really know what to do. Um, so I, I kind of spent some time there, learned tech, learned businesses inside uh, from the inside out. And I joined a startup called Strange Loop Networks based in Vancouver as a, as a fairly early employee and uh, grew with them as we commercialized that product. It was a very, very complicated technology okay. uh, that basically would accelerate the download speed of a website uh, into your browser. Uh, but it would do it in the line of traffic. So it was high risk, high reward type of technology. Mm -hmm. And I grew with that company to about 60 plus people. And then we were acquired uh, in 2013. Wow. And shortly after that, I founded, uh, I founded Rubicloud. Okay, so what is Rubicloud and, and how did you come up with the idea? Yeah, so Rubicloud, the initial thesis, uh, which has evolved a lot over the years, but the initial thesis was a lot of these, it's actually interesting just because today, you know, we saw um, Cloudera and Hortonworks merge in a you know, $520 yep. billion all-stock merger. And five and a half years ago, those were the two hottest companies in the in the tech space right now. Sure. Big data was the single biggest kind of topic. You know, MapR was hot. All these kind of open source database companies were hot. And the initial thesis was, well, as all this emerging big data technology, all this emerging cloud technology came out to the market, what are the real world applications for all of this? Uh, what are the industries and verticals that are going to be able to do things that they previously could not do? And the vertical that we picked at Rubicloud to, to look at that thesis was the large retail, uh, kind of the large retailers of the world. You know, retail is a, is a $6 trillion market globally. 
And uh, we, we felt that the retailers who were serving that market were the perfect uh, kind of the vertical to turn these big technologies that were happening, these big kind of technical waves that were happening into products and applications that could change their business. So that was the initial thesis of the business. Gotcha. It hasn't changed. Uh, we focus now way more on the application of the data, the application of the uh, machine learning into real-world use cases for retailers and real-world products. But the initial thesis still remains the same. Interesting. Um, so walk me through kind of exactly what you guys kind of do, because that that's kind of a pretty good like high level, but how do you guys yeah. actually put this into practice? Yeah, so I, uh, I I always you know like to explain to people, retail is one of those industries where it seems like it's really simple on the surface, but it's actually extremely complicated yeah. behind the scenes. So, it, it, I mean, think about when you walk into a regular store. Let, let's use a random example of like a drug store. You might walk in to get your you know your toothpaste and fill your prescription and get your shampoo or whatever it may be. Well, that store, that brand will probably have a hundred thousand SKUs available at any point in time. They've got thousands of stores across the country. They've got a dozen or so distribution centers. They have contracts with every single one of those SKUs that they carry, all of those CPGs. And they have to decide months, weeks, and sometimes a year or more in advance how much to order, what to price it at, sure. how to promote it in New York versus California versus you know uh, DC. Uh, and, and more importantly, Every single element of what happens in a retailer is uh, is kind of determined, right? If right. something is at the end cap, that's paid for. If something is on the front page of a flyer, that's paid for. If you get an offer as a you know loyalty customer, somebody paid for that. So there's literally an uh, infinite number of permutations of how a retailer runs their business, and it's a perfect AI problem. So we build products to solve the most inefficient parts of that retail business. Uh, kind of, you know, cycle, essentially. One is the uh, kind of the whole back end supply chain and assortment. So questions around how much to order, what type of assortment I should be carrying, where I should order it from, and where I should potentially ship it to initially. Um, the second bucket is uh, the kind of pricing and promotion of those goods. Okay. Uh, so how do I price it? How do I promote it? How much do I ship to the individual store A versus store B? How often do I mark it down? How often do I replenish it? All of those things. Right. And then the third area is very, very individual member centric. So my view is if you have a brand, you have a loyalty membership, even if you don't have an official points-based loyalty membership. So when you market or interact with your customers on email, on SMS, on flyers, on the digital app, on the mobile app, on the e-commerce app, on any opportunity you have to put your brand in front of a customer, what is driving what you show them? The offers, the products, the content, the messaging, that all has to be relevant and all has to be valuable to that customer. So all three of those areas together basically form how you run a retailer. And our vision, our thesis is that a retailer needs to start adopting AI into their daily business operations because the competition right now is only AI in that yeah. entire space. Interesting. So it's kind of not like, should you do it? It's why haven't you done it yet? Yeah, interesting. So how do you work with um, retailers to actually kind of implement your software? 
Yeah, so this is where it's both complicated and kind of simple and exciting at the same time. So okay. it's complicated because the data that we need to solve those three big problems, so supply chain, price and promotions, and then uh, kind of membership and loyalty. So yeah. let's use those three big buckets. The data we need for that is usually uh, buried in dozens of very bespoke databases that sure. go back a decade or more. In some cases, it might be, you know, in an old kind of um, database that doesn't even have support anymore. And in other cases, it might be a brand new modern system that you just put in, you know, a year ago on e-commerce or something. So the, the, the hardest thing we have to do when we work with a retailer is extracting that data and turning it into a format that can be AI ready right. and cloud ready. We've productized that process. Okay. Uh, we have made it very simple for retailers to be able to send us that data in the in the secure cloud environment on any of the three cloud providers that they want us to run on, you know, uh, sure. Microsoft, uh, Google, and AWS. Right. Uh, and we can even do it on-premise if they want us to, as long as it's containerized. Okay. But we basically allow them to pipe in data into the Rubicloud Cloud platform okay. very, very quickly. And we're not talking about small amounts of data. We're talking about hundreds of terabytes, usually you know, a half a dozen to a dozen databases. Wow. And we create that single data format that is machine learning AI ready. Um, from there, we actually enable the actual machine learning products. And the good news here is once that's done, pretty much executing what we do is really easy because all these retailers already have systems in place that we just have to plug instructions into. So supply chains, how much to order, what assortment to carry, well, we can plug that into your supply chain system that you already have. Uh, pricing and promotion, we can already plug that into your ERP and into your POS, into your in-store operation systems. Marketing and loyalty, we can plug that into your Salesforce marketing automation, into your Adobe marketing automation tools, into your e-commerce apps, into your mobile apps. So the good thing about retailers is that every execution layer that you can influence the decisions I talked about earlier are already in place. Interesting. The data is not clean. The AI products don't exist. But if you solve those two problems, executing on those in practice is actually very, very easy. So with, with us, we can typically get a, a very large kind of publicly traded multi-billion dollar retailer up and running in, in usually less than two quarters. Um, That's actually really and, quick. Uh, that's very, very quick. If you look at like how long an ERP project yeah. might take or how kind of, you know, uh, even just like implementing like a basic marketing automation tool can sometimes take up to a year, right? So, sure. so our- I built one, so I know. <laughs> yeah, so speed is everything right now. Like yeah. your, your ground yeah. can shift in like literally, you know, forget two quarters, in two months, your whole ground could shift, right? Like two months yeah. ago, Toys R Us was dead. Yeah. Now they're yeah. coming back. Like yeah. we don't know what will happen in retail in the next, uh, kind of few years, we know they're here to stay, but speed is the name of the game. And that's ultimately how we operate. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's kind of, I think, the next big kind of innovation, I think, is like bringing kind of the internet and the power of kind of AI and machine learning back into kind of the physical world, right? Like, and I think the best yeah. almost example is kind of like what you guys are doing, but even just like, I think what a lot of people can relate to is like what Amazon's doing with Amazon Go and what we'll cover them later. But Right. Like yeah. they're basically putting their kind of technology back into the space. Right. And so I, I think it's kind of interesting because I think people don't realize that, like, if there's a promotion of, say, like pickles at the end of an aisle, well, they pro obviously they have to order more pickles. And, and then based on maybe historically the last 10 years of data, they know that they need to order, I don't know, like 
500 more jars or 100 more jars or whatever that number is, right? But like through data, and that's like a very, very basic example, and I'm sure you can provide us with better examples. But like, I think the average person doesn't think about some of that stuff, right? And how important yeah. that is, right? So do you maybe want to give us some better examples to that? Yeah, so uh, a good example around kind of pricing and promotions is if we use that pickle example, well, pickles belong usually to a condiments category. Okay. That category probably have, you know, I would say uh, a few hundred different uh, types of condiments. Right. Each condiment will have a few to maybe even more than a few uh, actual brands, right? Pickles right. have three or four different brands. And each category may or may not have your own private label if you're a retailer as well. Maybe they carry their own pickle that they manufacture themselves. Right. So in that example, as the category manager or the buyer or the merchandiser, you have to basically manage that entire P&L for that retailer for 12 months straight. Yeah. At any point in time, you're buying and ordering products across that category. You're deciding how much to order, how much to ship to each distribution center, how much to allocate to each store how often to mark that pricing down, how often to replenish it. And then you have to decide, do you promote it or do you just keep it at regular price? You're trying to optimize for certain things like margin versus kind of revenue. Uh, and, and in the case of pickles, it's a not as good of an example, but what if it's a perishable item, right? Yeah, and you have to manage the brand as well. So you can't walk into a high-end grocer and see, I always use the example, you can't walk into a high-end grocer and see, you know, brown bananas. Yeah. Because the expectation there is that the bananas are actually pretty close to exactly what you need them to be. And bananas have like a three or four day shelf life, right? So the same goes for all the other fresh produce, the same goes for bag produce, the same goes for meats, all of those things. So the complexity suddenly is infinite. Yeah. And category managers, buyers and merchandisers are ultimately measured on gross profit and various metrics around overstock, understock, and accuracy. Okay. And those are the things that we help the most with uh, in, in a big part of our product suite, is making that entire process exponentially more efficient. We're not talking we're going to come in and give you a couple percents here and there. We're talking like standard deviations uh, of, of efficiency here. So, so that's the kind of concrete examples we will affect gross profit. We will affect inventory turn. We will affect overall accuracy of how you run your business. Oh, interesting. So how does that work then in the case like, I, yeah, pickles is probably a bad example, but I, I used it because the next point I want to make is like, like obviously the, the grocery store would have to order those from the, the company. But like what in the case of like, you know, like Pepsi or Coke where they have those like big displays where it's like, you know, yeah. eight feet tall and it's just like made into some sort of like almost like art kind of piece in the corner or at the front of the yeah, store where yeah, it's yeah. like hundreds yeah. of boxes of coke or pepsi long how does it work with somebody like that because usually from my understanding somebody from coke or pepsi would actually like come bring the inventory and kind of set up the display how does that mm -hmm. kind of how is that different from something that like a retailer kind of orders compared to like working with a company to set up kind of a big display or is it kind of the same thing? Yeah, it's all under what, what, you know, we would call the, the kind of promotional planning process, right? In okay. that particular example of a, of a Pepsi sponsored end cap display, it just happens to be a, a big part of trade spend. So Pepsi oh, okay. will come and say, we'll pay for this 
And as a result, there's a whole lot of incentives that they might give the retailer to allow them to do that. Okay. Uh, they might give them the, the, the stuff at a very specific uh, discount or whatever. Maybe there's a lot of negotiation that happens. And that's the primary job of these category managers and vendors is to manage the trade spend, okay. to manage the promotionals uh, that are happening, uh, and to make sure that they're not conflicting with each other as well, right? If Pepsi did that at one end cap, you can't have Coke next to it. Yeah, so right. all of those, again, all of those variables have to be taken into consideration on on how much you order, how do you promote it, you know, the flyer is a good example, emails going out to everybody. All of those things are what we call promotional variables or mechanics. Okay. And even then it, it's it's not even that's the that's like a really good obvious kind of, you know, it literally kind of uh, you know, hits you in the face as you walk in example. But yeah. if you think about say a fashion retailer, okay. well that problem is even more nuanced, right? Like where do you put the new fall arrival products, right? right? Do you actually bury them in the back of the store or do you put them in the front right on display when people walk in? Right. That's still a promotional mechanic just because it's your own, you know, sweater that you manufactured at Lululemon or Gap mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you don't need to decide where it goes. Um, the, the kind of, the problem goes even kind of deeper into other verticals as well. But like basically promotional mechanics are one of the most important things in retail, how you promote it, how much you order to kind of go against that promotional plan, and then how you market it. All these are variables that, that you need to take into account, and our system does. It's, it's a very, very complicated system um, because it's so entrenched into retail. I don't think there's a company in the world that knows retail as well as we do, to be perfectly honest right now. So how does that work? Like, if I'm one of those kind of like Coke or Pepsi or something, do I see kind of do I have my own kind of dashboard or something from from your software or is it just for the kind of yeah. retailer themselves how does that kind of work yeah so that's a really good question it's more of a roadmap question more than anything right now we okay. are our roadmap our current products sell directly to the retailers got you um with with a lot of our retail clients we obviously see the value with them of what that data could mean to their vendor and manufacturing partners right um, we haven't decided what we're going to do there, to be honest, okay. but um, but we know the value of what we have there. And we're our first and foremost goal is to make sure our retail clients um, are going to get value and then working with them to determine what the manufacturer kind of, you know, uh, kind of connection looks like. Sure. And we have a lot of really cool ideas there and a couple of actual tests there as well. Um, but it's, it's harder to kind of speak about that right now. No, that's fair. So y- you brought up something before we were kind of started recording that was that I've kind of find fascinating. You said to me that kind of we need to figure out how to make AI kind of commercialized. What does that mean to yeah. you and why do you think that's so important? Yeah, because, well, for starters, we're here in Toronto, okay. uh, which is becoming okay. the AI machine learning hub of, uh, of you know, at least the top three city globally. And I would argue one of the, the top cities, you know, um, in North America as well. Sure. Uh, or sorry, the top city in North America. And there's a lot of emphasis on, oh, we did this with deep learning. It's great. But not enough emphasis on, well, what problem did you solve? Is that commercially viable for client two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all the way through? Can you actually change an industry with it, right? Because AI has to actually become products. Because by commercializing AI into real products that then change industries, that's how this whole promise of AI actually becomes something that's valuable for every single uh, kind of you know company, every single industry, and all the entrepreneurs and different skill sets around that build this up. 
because there's only so many companies you can build up and flip as research businesses to larger companies. So sooner or later, you have to live and die by products and commercialization that you build. Um, In that regard, I think being smart about the commercial problems that AI can solve is also really, really important. I was arguing with somebody uh, a while ago where, you know, they were saying, hey, uh, there's this AI company that wants to uh, that, that wants to kind of help you pick uh, basically using AI to the, the punchline is using AI to help you source a mortgage and predicting yeah. when you're going to need a mortgage. Right. Interesting. And, and I'm like, well, I think I know when I need a mortgage. I just took on a half a million dollar debt because I'm buying a house. Sure. Right. Like what what that there's no machine I need there. And the, the kind of the band of what kind of a mortgage rate I get is very, very dependent on like factors that are outside of anybody's control. Like if my credit is absolutely terrible and I don't have a job, well, it's instantly going to be different than if my credit is great and I make a lot of money in a very steady job. So like my, my point is like, that's not actually an AI problem. That's interesting. You know, not a problem that AI can solve the data to feed that doesn't actually uh, have a complete kind of view of anything. Um, but if you look at our world, like retail, well, if you have 100,000 SKUs, 1,000 locations, and you're buying literally $6 billion of goods every single year against those 100,000 SKUs, that's not a human solvable problem. That's right. an AI problem. If you look at, say, you know, fraud against credit cards, well, you know, think how many credit card transactions yeah. have. That's an AI problem, right? If you look at mapping individuals uh, to potential clinical trials around the world that would map their disease pattern, that's an AI problem. Yeah. So you have to look at these really, really huge industry problems that AI can solve and get really excited about commercializing them because then whole industries can change and hopefully become more efficient and, uh, and kind of ready for the next generation of, of where our kind of economy takes us. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think the thing that's so – it's portrayed so much in the media lately that like AI is going to like – basically destroy the human race and and everything's just going to be like pandemonium and chaos and and like nobody's going to work ever again and like i don't see it like that at all i i think like to your point like it's going to solve some really really big problems right and then it's going to be kind of up to humans to leverage what it figures out you know to make more money and like probably create more jobs right like i think majority of people especially that work some of the more kind of like repetition kind of maybe boring jobs for lack of a better term for it might end up doing something more exciting and fulfilling because of ai right like that's how i kind of see it and maybe that's just like a little rose covered glasses but i don't think like just that that's just kind of my opinion i guess right yeah, I think it's that? really hard to, to generalize that, right? Like, I mean, I I, I kind of call myself like a the, a pragmatic optimist in okay. the sense that like maybe AI is going to kind of take over. Uh, maybe we're all living in a simulation; doesn't matter anyways. Um, but I think any of those maybes are in reality very, very, very far away. Sure. In the short term, we have a lot of really big problems. I think AI can solve. Sure. Uh, some of those are socially very, very positive. Some of them are. Uh, kind of uh, kind of from a economics perspective, very positive for industries, and some of them can impact both, right? Like even yeah. in our world, we don't talk about it a lot, but food wastage is a very, very, very big problem. Yep. That's not good for anybody. Mm-hmm. That's like literally a problem that nobody likes, right? Yep. The retailer wastes money 
the food goes to waste, yeah. uh, the consumer ends up paying more and they end up contributing towards that food waste. So if you can make that whole process more efficient, it's literally a win for everybody involved. Yeah. So there's a lot of these problems. And my, my view is that you can't paint it with a broad brush because if you look at our world, we don't have any users who are worried their jobs are going away. Right. Because the category manager, a buyer, a merchandiser, I was talking about earlier, they're, they're worried about vendor negotiations. They're kind of negotiating Coke off of Pepsi. They're going to trade shows to check out the latest drink that they want to potentially focus on. They don't want to come in every day and get into the minutia of 300 promotions happening and 300 you know, orders they have to place. And right now they're just not. They're kind of ignoring a lot of that and just letting kind of the historical patterns dictate what they want to do in the future. Um, so, but these are highly specialized professional jobs that are going to make, be made more efficient with what we do. But it's really hard to make that same argument with, say, a truck driver, right? Okay, or yeah. a, uh, or you know, uh, or, or kind of some somebody who probably, if AI does take over in the form factor, in this case of a autonomous driving vehicle, yeah. it is a lot harder to make that argument. So. I, I don't like painting with a broad brush. I know sure. in our world, it's not something we worry about, okay. but there are other industries where it certainly would be. Interesting. Thanks for listening to Building the Future. This show is heard by more than a million people monthly in over 15 markets worldwide, including Silicon Valley. Kevin Horick's guests are leading business owners, successful entrepreneurs, and merchandisers worldwide. Now, your brand has an opportunity to tap into this dedicated and active group of business people who are looking for places to invest and the right opportunities to support. Find out how you can get involved at buildingthefutureshow.com. So I want to kind of go back to the customer side of kind of what you guys do, because how involved is pulling kind of customer data because you mentioned like a loyalty program or there's other things, but like how much of what you guys are doing in the AI kind of machine learning space is, is around kind of making the experience better for the customer. Yeah. So uh, that, that's a really good question. I'm glad that, that you brought it up because I, I had this um, uh, saying to, to retailers when I meet with them is that, um, you know, Hey, uh, retailer X executive, guess what? The, the consumer doesn't care about your problems. Right. Yeah. Like they don't care that you're uh, you have a lot of debt. They don't care that, you know, your uh, kind of teams are, you know, uh, kind of fighting for kind of budget. They don't care that the, the stock is constantly volatile. They don't care about, you know, the fact that Coca-Cola is squeezing you again for margin. They don't care about those problems. Right. What the customer wants is so I, I kind of look at it. Well, what does the consumer want today from a retailer? Sure. The first thing is they want. Uh, relevant digital experiences. So that's how I look at loyalty. Every interaction other than the flyer with the customer is digital. Email, the e-commerce whole checkout experience, the mobile app, the in-store clienteling app, the um, SMS in some parts of the world, all of those interaction points, social for some kind of you know influencer program, every interaction with the customer is digital. They want those experiences to be relevant. They want it to be, you know, helpful to them. An offer has to be valuable to them. A message has to be valuable to them. If a new product launches and it's going to be good for them, they want to know about it. So the first thing that they want is they've given you the right to send you to send them information, emails, offers, promotions, all that stuff. They've given, they've opted in. 
you, sure. at the very least, what you can do is give them relevancy and value in return every time you give them a digital interaction. So that's the one thing. The second thing is now, especially in grocery uh, and kind of faster moving goods like drug uh, and health and kind of all those things, they want a very seamless last mile experience. So buy online, pick up in store, show up at the parking lot and not wait 25 minutes because then they might as well just walked in and get the groceries themselves. Yeah. Buy online, deliver, deliver it to home and it's actually there and the stuff is fresh. You know, uh, buying in the store and having it fulfilled in a different location if it's like a large item like a couch or something that entire kind of logistics of that last mile and we see companies like instacart and okado and all these cool companies kind of you know emerging here and becoming really big that's really important to the consumer uh how do you forecast for that how do you kind of you know uh predict for that that's what we can solve for right interesting uh the the, the third area that 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 kind of loyalty and customers really really want is they want the retailer to get on top of the future assortment trends. Sure. Because there's yeah. these kind of like these new, because uh, let, let me kind of use an example. Like 30 sure. years ago, when a new trend was coming up, a new retailer would emerge, right? Oh, it's an yeah. organic food yeah. retailer or it's a specialty kind of cleaning products retailer. Well, now these kind of new uh, kind of trends are resulting in venture back companies that are popping up. So you've got, you know, Dollar Shave Club, you've got Native, you've got, uh, you know, Warby Parker, you've got Allbirds, you've got, pick a niche or pick a category, a, a venture-backed startup that is building the product direct to consumers popping up. And they might become successful. It's too early to, to tell a lot of that time. Sure. But the consumer wants the retailer to also care about that, right? So in Canada, Loblaws has done a very good job of taking, yeah. um, getting ahead of this whole kind of, uh, kind of clean eating with kind of healthy, organic, uh, kind of antibiotic-free world with their kind of blue private label menu yeah. because they've anticipated the consumer cares about that, right? So when I show up at a retailer now and every single deodorant is not antibiotic or chemical-free, well, suddenly I'm going, well, the retailer doesn't really get me because this is a clearly a category that I care about, right? Or yeah. I show up and there there isn't a plant-based you know, meat isn't even a consideration. Well, you know, we can debate whether plant-based meat is good or not all day long, but the consumer cares about it. So assortment has to be relevant to the consumer. Mm -hmm. So all of those things, in our view, are part of loyalty. They're part of that kind of customer expectation. And, and going back to my first comment, if you screw it up, the customer doesn't forgive you anymore. They yeah. don't care. They're just going to go to a retailer who's gotten it right. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess and, – and you can tell me how crazy of an idea this is or isn't or how far we are or aren't away from it. But like I'll give you like a selfish example of something that I would love in, in two scenarios. I'm celiac just so like that – and that means I can't eat like wheat, right? And it's not by choice. Mm -hmm. It's like I miss a lot of things. But if my local grocery store – and I had to say opt in, but and I would because I – love that convenience of giving away some sort of personal data to have a better kind of experience. If my local grocery store basically said, here's all the gluten-free items that you can get, or here's new items that you got, and they either text that to me or popped it up in a notification in the loyalty app or, or emailed or, or all those things or some sort of way. And, you know, maybe they automatically deliver it or whatever. It doesn't really matter, but like yeah. just something as simple yeah. as being able to recommend 
current or new products related to my kind of choice in, in lifestyle, whether it's kind of mandatory or not, is is something that I think is kind of much needed. And it would probably creep some people out, but I think a lot of people would love that convenience, especially when it's like a dietary kind of restriction, right? And or if you're on a strict diet, or maybe you just want to only eat organic or vegan or, or whatever, right? I think, like, yeah. how far do you think that actually is away from kind of being a reality? I think that the technology is there. Sure. The, um, you know, not just with us, but with, you know, other companies as well. Um, the machine learning AI, the data cleaning, the kind of architecture in the cloud to make that possible mm -hmm. is there. We've okay. proven it with our clients. Okay. Um, it, it's a perfect problem for a lot of the unsupervised reinforcement learning out there. I think that the challenge right now is the prioritization, the prioritization of something like that within the retailer, it gets lost amongst all the other priorities that they're dealing with. So depending on the retailer, they may or may not care about the problem you just kind of, uh, you right. know, the, the example you just used, which is a great example because like if, if you, I, I kind of described it as like every single person has a passive relationship with their retailers and they want it to become relevant when it is active, which is when they're thinking about shopping. Right. And it's not just like this discretionary world where I'm going to go buy new clothing because I want to buy new clothing. It's we need to eat. We need to bathe. We need to live our lives. And retailers provide all the goods for us to do that. So that passive relationship, when you give them data through loyalty uh, kind of mechanisms, needs to be turned into something proactive that you can get value out of. Yeah. And I think every customer wants that. Sure. So I the, the inverse is probably happening in the example you just described. You're probably getting offers for bread yeah totally right? and and that's kind of silly that doesn't make any sense like i think we're all in a way trying to go back to this world where we have that relationship with our neighborhood retailer yeah but we know that that's not actually possible now because the world is moving in a different direction but we still want that same relationship we want that same familiarity sure. and to be honest in in like the 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 work that we've done and also in the research that gets published on this topic, the, the customer will pay more for it. Yeah. Right. They, yep. they, they will in many cases pay more for it. That's ultimately Amazon prime's kind of big selling point is the convenience and the ability to kind of understand you more. Sure. Um, that's why they're putting devices in everybody's home. That's all that. So we will pay for that convenience, but in other cases it might also be predicting that, Hey, you are a consumer that's very, very budget conscious on, you know, all of your purchases. And if I start sending you all these super high-end products, that's also not very appropriate as well, right? Mm -hmm. And if there's a very specific, you know, product that I know you buy a lot of that I think you could stock up on and I know you're budget conscious, giving you that promotion just adds to your loyalty to me as well. So that, again, there's got to be a value exchange there between you and the retailer. And if that value exchange can't happen manually, which is how it's currently being done, it has to happen through machine learning and AI. Sure. Well, and I, I think the other thing that selfishly I'd want too is like even just like a like a clothing retailer. Like if I shop at one store and I buy, I don't know, like shirts and pants from, right? And you know every six months I on average buy a pair of a new pair of jeans and two two new shirts, for example, right? Like why wouldn't you automatically tell me, hey, jeans are on sale and we have some new shirts exactly. that based yeah. on your historical data have similar kind of pattern or, or style that you like. 
like have a have a look and maybe we'll give you 10% off or something, right? And we'll just ship it to you. Like that to me seems like such a simple thing that just kind of in, in keeping with how to actually maybe build simple AI things into kind of traditional businesses, I'm just kind of shocked that more and more companies haven't like hired you guys to kind of solve this for them, right? Because they seem so simple. Yeah, so we're, we're obviously in a growth stage mode. Sure. So we're trying to commercialize this as much as we can to as many retailers as we can. And um, we're, we're seeing a, a shift though, right? I think a, a couple of things have happened in the last three years. Uh, I would say that three years ago at RuboCloud, a lot of people we talked to would say, oh, well, it's going to be 100% e-commerce and, uh, and all these small to medium business retailers are going to be, the, the they're going to grow exponentially. Um, that hasn't really happened, right? Okay. Like all these SMB retailers, you mentioned Jet.com earlier, all these kind of online only retailers, a lot of them have been acquired or gone out of business or been rolled up into private equity. Yeah. Um, because like the thing that people forgot about that one thing is that, that one comment is that it's very, very, very expensive to build a brand. Yeah. Everybody in North America knows Walgreens yeah. and has heard about Walgreens or CVS. Well, and they or trust Kroger. them. And they trust them, right? How many people have heard of the online grocer that just popped up three months ago that's spending a million dollars a month on AdWords right now, yeah. right? Fair. So, And in Canada, every single Canadian has heard of Loblaws. Yeah. Every single Canadian has heard of Shoppers Drug Mart. So that brand is 100 years old. Yeah. You can't just recreate that with money. It takes time to build that brand. And the second thing that hasn't happened is the store didn't die. Yeah. The store has evolved, right? So I, I always use the example of, well, what, what the hell is Omnichannel? Because if I am at my office and I place an order for groceries to be delivered to my house tonight, and halfway through the day, I decide I'm going to pick it up on my way home, yeah. I drive in, pop open my trunk, and I put gro- and the groceries get put into the trunk, and I decide, oh, crap, I need four or five other items. I walk into the store and I buy them. Well, was that an online purchase or an offline purchase, right? Yeah. Like, and the real answer is who cares? All yeah. I cared about was the convenience to have choice, to have whatever mechanism and channel available to me, right? So yeah. I think the store didn't die. It just be- became different. It, the, it got repurposed. And if we want to go further and using the Amazon Go experience, well, nobody wants to wait in line to mm-hmm. check out anymore. My, my very first job was at Safeway sure. as a cashier. And, um, and we had a rule back then, if more than two people were waiting, you had to call for backup. Okay. And everybody in safety was trained on, on, on being a cashier. It didn't matter if you were in the deli or if you were the store manager, you knew how to run the POS machines. Interesting. So, you know, nobody wants to wait to check out at a, at a retailer. That's literally the worst experience ever. You're sitting there going, my life is rotting away as I wait yeah, to yeah. check out right now. Like, that's how I feel when I'm sitting there. So the store experience has to be seamless, very, very convenient. But at the same time, there's no reason now when I walk into a store where there that I shouldn't be able to find information about the products digitally, yeah. right? So electronic price tags, digital displays. Um, if I'm talking to a store associate at a clothing company or a, or like a home uh, renovation company or like a home goods company or, or whatever, there's no reason they shouldn't be able to pull up my information, my loyalty program and know, oh, hey, you're in the middle of a kitchen remodel and actually have that information on hand, right? So the store experience has to become more digital, more relevant, more kind of informative so that when we go to the store, it's genuinely better than just sitting at home on my couch. So the store isn't dying. That's the second thing. And my other main point, the store is just changing. 
Yeah. And retailers have to catch up with all of this. And they have to do it really, 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 really quickly. Yeah, it's interesting because you're right. Because if I'm at, at like a clothing store and I'm trying on a shirt, for example, and they don't have my size in the color I want or something, like the the person helping me should literally just be able to say like, okay, no problem. We'll just ship it to you. And it shows up a few yeah, days exactly. later. Like, why doesn't that happen, right? Exactly. That, that problem is technically solved, by the way. So our lead investor in the last round was Intel. They okay. have technology that can solve that problem for you. They can tag clothing. They can tag items with RFIDs so that the store associates sitting there as you try on the shirt and ask them if they have a different size can literally pull up a tablet and go, yes, we've got two in our back room, four in the store, you know, down the street and 10 in the distribution center. Um, and it was, I guess, an example, they would just go to the back room and get it. But if they didn't, they would help you connect to your checkout and you could buy it online and check it out through there. So like, like the tech exists already. It's just Getting not it, yeah. enough retailers are adopting it fast enough, right? Like, like uh, it's always that experience where you're like you're at a shoe store and you ask the associate, do you have this in like a size 10? And they kind of stare at you blindly. And they go back into the, you know, the, the inventory room. And it's kind of like they just got lost for 10 minutes. And they came back like, I don't know what's going on back there. Yeah, right. It's like, well, that doesn't need to happen anymore. That problem has been solved. You just have to adopt it now. So I, I'm curious, though, how do you guys kind of price this stuff then? Because in some ways, you could have a bunch of different pricing models. Yeah. So, uh, so, so fundamentally, we are a software as a service business. Okay. Um, and I don't just mean that in that there's a monthly fee, right? I, I mean that in like the first principle uh, sense. We manage the whole thing on your behalf. Okay. You don't have to buy hardware. When we make a change, we're continuously pushing it to the whole product, right? Like the old way of like, I bought a piece of software from IBM and in five years, I get an upgrade. Yeah. Well, that's really, really silly, right? Like we're, we're pushing upgrades every two to four weeks, wow. right? Yeah. So the first principles of software as a service will apply to us. So it is a kind of SaaS offering, but at the same time, we're not a downloadable widget, right? Right. There's an implementation process. It's going to take one to two quarters, get up and running. We need to train your users on it. It's a highly kind of specialized product. Um, so it's a monthly model, but it's not going to be, you know, it's, it, it scales with the size of the retailer's business. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Um, it's going to be, obviously, if you're a $100 billion retailer, it's going to be, you know, significantly more than if you're a half a billion dollar retailer because the data volume, the transaction volume, the number of users, all of those things are going to be much greater. Yeah. And there's just the computing power you need to crunch exactly. all that data, right? Yeah. Interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious though, we've talked about it kind of throughout the show about kind of the future of kind of retail, but like, what else do you guys kind of see um, that could potentially happen down the road or, or in the kind of near future? Yeah. So I always like to kind of answer a question like that with uh, kind of the current state. Okay. Uh, so in North America and in Western Europe, if we just use those two markets, right? So sure. Canada, US and, and kind of the Western European countries, um, there is about $8 trillion of retail spending every single year. Wow. Uh, that doesn't include restaurants or, you know, you buying a car or kind of travel or whatever. These are like physical items, right? That, that you need to, to kind of, you know, to, to be a human being, basically. <laughs> um, so $8 trillion of consumer spending. Uh, 
Amazon is, if we give them credit for the upper bound uh, and we give them credit for all the marketplace as well, it's about 130 to $150 billion of that $8 trillion. Wow. So the numbers are, you know, Loblaws, a Canadian retailer, is I think a $65 billion retailer. Right. Walmart is a half a trillion dollar retailer. Wow. Yeah. Right. Like um, Walgreens, uh, kind of, you know, Boots Alliance, now with some of the Rite Aid acquisitions, is almost a $100 billion retailer. So right. in terms of sheer volume and size, this is not a Amazon is one, everybody else, you know, board it up and move on. Retail's dead. Right. It's over. It's Amazon's game and that's it. I think what's happening is that, you know, everybody is looking at Amazon because they're innovating the most and they're trying to figure out how they change their businesses faster. So what I see happening to the future of retail is these really big kind of retailers, these kind of multi-generational retailers, these large publicly traded kind of, you know, cross category, cross geographical retailers fighting back harder than they've ever fought back and investing in big, big parts of their business from technology, machine learning, AI, whatever you want to call it for real business problems, which is hopefully where we play, investing into the in-store experiences, which is where a lot of companies are trying to play right now, um, investing into upskilling their workforce, uh, not just kind of the store associate, but the corporate workforce, the analytics workforce, the the kind of people running the day-to-day businesses. Uh, and, and in many cases, you know, kind of cleaning up the, the kind of financing of their business, right? Like realizing that, that the debt load that they've taken on in many cases is going to crush them and not stru- and restructuring debt or doing whatever they, they need to. But I don't think anybody genuinely believes that we're going to live in a world where it's just Amazon and nobody else. It's $8 trillion of spending. So to us, the future of retail is still a thousand or so players, but the winners and losers might look different. And how you win is going to be determined by how quickly you can change. Sure. That's ultimately, if I could bet on one thing, I would bet on any retailer right now that's implementing things and being decisive in a very, very quick way. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. Yeah, you're right. Because I, I never really thought retail would go away it, it like it'll change, right? Like, And I think... The perfect example is something as simple as like if you need like um, medicine for your kids in at like 2 a.m., right? Like Amazon's not going to get get it to you by 2.30 in a.m. It's just not going to happen, right? Like you physically yeah. need to get in your car and drive down the road to some, some drugstore that's open 24 hours, right? Like un- unless they start building those. But like I, I, I just think to your point, like it's just going to change a bit, right? And some of the stores might get a bit smaller. Some might get a bit bigger. Some of them might have, you know, where you go pick it up. Some of them will have to deliver more often. It's just going to change, right? It's interesting. Yeah. And even going going back to that, going to that example, like even if Amazon can deliver at 2 a.m., you really don't care whether you get it from Amazon or yeah. CVS or Walgreens, right? Your sure. kid is sick at 2 a.m. You just want the medicine as quickly as humanly possible. So I, I think that it's not – people aren't in love with Amazon. People are in love with the convenience yeah. of Amazon. Yeah. It's and if it, you can offer the same convenience, then they'll go to you. Yeah. It, no, it's interesting because I was reading an article about a guy that, that was like um, doing a review about Prime and he was literally saying like he will literally just order more stuff and he spent way more money 
just on like useless stuff. Well, it's not useless, but stuff he doesn't need because he has a Prime account. He's like, oh, I'll just get that, right? And it just shows up a few days later. So, but like if Walgreens or somebody or who else had something like that, people would order more from them too, right? And like exactly. you could leverage your software to make that happen for other companies. Is yeah, that fair we, to say? We just think that. I, I agree, and I, I just think that retailers need to completely restack their whole technology stack. Sure. Like, if, if that's a terrible sentence, but like, right now the technology stack that runs all their day-to-day business processes are on-premise, slow to adopt, yeah. required too many people to manage and maintain, and to support it. And you might need to keep all those systems in place just to keep the lights on, but the new systems around your store, around your loyalty, around your pricing promotions around all of those things, they're going to be from companies that you previously would not have looked at before. Right. So I, like when we talk to big retailers and I'm like, and I tell them, I think your future stack should look something like Microsoft, Google, Salesforce, Adobe, startup one, startup two, startup three, startup four. Yeah. It's not going to look like I'm an Oracle shop and I'm a consultant shop. Why? Right. Yeah. Like, oh, Oracle does this and McKinsey does that. It's like, well, that's not good enough anymore. You're probably going to have to learn how to manage different types of vendors. And I'm not just speaking on, on behalf of startups. It's literally, you know, Google has a lot of great stuff happening in the space. Microsoft is spending a lot of time on retail. It's a really important vertical. They care a lot about retailers succeeding. Yeah. And they're going to invest in products. They're going to invest in cloud technologies. They're going to invest in kind of R&D here. So all of these companies are actually on the side of the retailers trying to help them. And retailers just need to figure out how to work with them faster. That's yeah, that's interesting. kind of all that it comes down to. Yeah, it's interesting because you're right. Like if if a retailer actually modernized kind of their software and they got their company under kind of like Google Express, which is kind of big in certain cities in the States, like – yeah. That could grow their business astronomically, right? Without really spending a ton of money to get there, right? Like, yeah, it's interesting. Well, like, I'll, I'll blindly plug Rubicloud for a second. Like, sure. One of our products, Price and Promo Manager, when we've deployed it fully at scale with a multi-billion dollar retailer, we'll drive like 1% to 1.25% gross profit. Wow. That's a huge number just because yeah. the process is so inefficient right now, right? Yeah. And and then you get onto an earnings call right now and you're like, oh, I missed by, you know, 10 basis points. And then your stock gets dumped, right? Yeah. So 1% is huge in the retail world when you're operating on like 8% gross profit margins or whatever low percentage, depending on the category you're in. So, you know, Google Express or any of those kind of last mile fulfillment companies will move profit numbers for you. Yep. Moving massive, yep. massive infrastructure workloads to the cloud on Azure will literally save you hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of five to 10 years, right? Yep. Like these aren't small things. These yeah. aren't widgets. These are fundamental shifts in how you look at technology that will save your business and help you grow in many cases too. So if you're a retailer, you just gotta, you gotta adopt it faster. That's honestly the only message that I think matters. Yeah. Well, and to your point, like a little while ago that you're basically pushing new updates every two to four weeks. Like, sure, they might not be like, sometimes it might be bug fixes, sometimes it might be like a small feature, but like, that's how fast things are changing. Like if, and and I hate to use this example, but I think it really kind of hits home to people. It's like, if you use Chrome, the browser, or you use Firefox, they're pushing new code every like eight weeks. 
you're getting a new version, whether you know it or not, you're getting a new version. So like companies yeah. like you guys have to push code that fast because how people are viewing you and using your software is getting updated just as fast, if not faster, right? Yeah, exactly. And the benefit happens on both sides now yeah. too, right? So if I use an example, like if you're using a legacy system to forecast you know, how much inventory to carry for fresh produce. Yeah. Well, that's been a huge area of research for us. So sure. if you a year ago didn't go with, say, RubyCloud or other kind of kind of first software as a principal machine learning company in this in this space, then, you know, now we have pushed four major updates on yeah. that specific problem. So not only are you not as good as the version we would have implemented last year, you're now four standard deviations behind on accuracy for fresh produce for forecasting at the store level compared to what you currently have. You're not a little bit behind. You're now, you know, exponentially behind in that yeah. one thing that, and if you're a big grocer and fresh produce is 30% of your revenue and, you know, 60% of your kind of shrinkage or loss because you're getting it wrong, well, you just missed a huge opportunity suddenly, right? Yeah. Interesting. But uh, Kerry, we're, we're out of time. So let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about you guys and any other links you want to mention. Yeah, uh, so rubiclaw.ai uh, is, is, our, is our website. Uh, there's obviously contact uh, abilities there. I think what's interesting is we're going to be at Grocery Talk this year. Okay. Uh, we're going to be at NRF in the Intel booth. Um, and more importantly, like, you know, find me on LinkedIn and, you know, connect with me the old fashioned way just by <laughs> me directly if you want. So, sure. And it's R U B I K L O U D. Yes. Um, and then, um, you on LinkedIn is K E R R Y L I U. Just if people want to look yeah. you up. Um, yeah, but the picture of me and the dog. <laughs> awesome. But thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. Have a good rest of your day, and we'll talk soon. Thanks a lot, Kevin. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, man. Thanks for having okay. me. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com. And keep building the future. <laughs>